Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Uh, welcome to RUF. If you're new here, my name's Britton. Um, the campus minister for RUF. Glad that y'all are here tonight. Um, the beginning of a new quarter. If I don't know you, I would love to meet you. Please introduce yourself to me afterwards. I'd love to grab a cup of coffee with you at Phil's or something um, and hear your story. I'd love to hang out with anybody here. So um, come and find me. Let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to do this quarter. There is a sermon in Matthew that Jesus preaches that maybe many of y'all are familiar with called the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of the closest thing we have to a full text of a sermon that Jesus preaches. And we're going to go through that this quarter. And the reason we're going through it is this. Last quarter, we went through Judges. And if you remember, it read very differently than it read tonight. Um, because what Judges is, is this, uh, it's the history of Israel during this period in which there was no king. And if you remember, Judges actually ends and it says by saying, everyone did what was right in their own eyes and there was no king in Israel. And Judges is a book that ends on a sour note. If you read it from beginning to end, it just gets worse and worse. Things get worse and worse in the book of Judges. And the, and the writer is telling us that without a king, things get worse and worse. And um, what this is, this quarter, and what Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is, is what does life, life look like in the kingdom? So this is a positive picture of what, what life looks like in the kingdom and what he answers in these first uh, couple of verses commonly called the Beatitudes is, uh, there's going to be a lot of like practical stuff later in the sermon, but he's kind of answering the first and maybe a most important question, which is, will I be happy there? Will I be happy under Jesus' rule? Uh, will I be happy in the kingdom of God? That word blessed is often translated happy. So pray with me, and then we'll consider that question. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for your son, Jesus, and not just the words uh, he's given us, but the life that he's given us. And I pray now as we consider them, you would open our hearts, that we would be pierced, that your Holy Spirit would be with us. We need you to be here. In your name we pray. Amen. So the question is, will we be happy? Can you be happy as a Christian in the kingdom of God? And in order to answer that question, I want you all to fix this image in your mind tonight. I wish I actually had one. I looked for one today all over our house. I would have thought we would have had one, but we didn't. But are you all familiar with what a Chinese finger trap is? Which I don't know if they originated in China. I don't know if that's offensive to Chinese people. But that's just what they're commonly called, a Chinese finger trap. And it's this little kind of bamboo hollow cylinder that you stick your fingers in. And when you pull, it tightens and you can't get your fingers out. And of course, if you remember like encountering that for the first time the kid, as a kid, it's really frustrating because you stick your fingers in and the, your instinct is the way I get my fingers out is by pulling. And you find out you have to do the exact opposite of what you think in order to get your fingers out. You actually have to push your fingers together. Are you all familiar with what a Chinese finger trap is? Okay. I want you to have that image in your mind because that's exactly the way Jesus is talking about happiness to us right here. We have an instinct. The way you get your fingers out is you pull. It makes sense. It seems logical. And all it does is lock down on you and keep you stuck. When you do the exact opposite of what you think you should do, you get free. Jesus is saying the same thing about happiness. And he is reversing the way we think about happiness. 
in order to get there and to kind of set us up, I want to say a little bit about what I mean and what Jesus means and the Bible means when it says happiness. Uh, It is not circumstantial or superficial happiness. The way we often think about happiness is it's something that comes from the outside. It's something that happens to us when the circumstances in our life finally line up, when we get what we want, when life goes the way that we planned, right? So think of your plans. Everybody in here has got plans. Don't you believe if they worked out, you would be happy? Everybody say yes, right? I think that. We all think that. Jesus is saying no. That's not how happiness comes. The super, that's actually superficial happiness. And, and maybe a good word to call it is actually amused because it evaporates very quickly. And actually, it almost always evaporates by the following morning. Right? Graduation. The next morning, the wonder of being a Stanford graduate actually kind of disappears pretty quickly. You can probably think now of several thresholds you've reached in life that were that was the threshold and actually probably within 24 hours it stopped making you happy. I doubt anything's lasted more than 24 hours. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Happiness or blessedness real happiness is a spiritual thing. It's more fundamental than circumstances. It's more about what's inside of you than what's going on outside of you. It's an abiding, fundamental, consistent happiness. You could call it joy. Jesus calls it blessedness here. And someone reminded me of a couplet that kind of helps get at that. It's just a a couplet. Two men looked out from prison bars. One saw mud, one saw stars. Two people. Circumstances exactly the same. One person is destroyed by their circumstances and one person is happy. See, happiness doesn't come by circumstances. And the reason why is because something deeper than circumstances, because of something going on inside of us, because of what we're rooted in, that's the happiness that Jesus is spoken of. It's a happiness that abides deeply and lastingly, but it's more complex than we think. And it's actually, it's really scary to deal with these kinds of deep things. It's really scary to go deep into our heart and be honestly introspective, and wrestle with them. And so what we find ourselves doing most of the time is very content to distract ourselves with amusement. Right? Uh, If you've... In a house, you can have a leak in a bathroom, floor pan, and a sink uh, underneath a bathtub. And you can function for years and years and years with dripping water behind the walls. Uh, you can the house can look nice. You can continue to function, and what's happening that entire time, while you're keeping your house and you're maintaining your house, and it looks nice on the outside, is on the inside it is rotting. And you know what's easier than dealing with a rotting structure than pulling up the faces of everything that look nice and doing the work of working on the rot and the wood that's falling apart. You know what's easier? Just putting a fresh coat of paint. <laughs> You know what? Look, I had not doing it written right there, and I crossed it out and said putting on a fresh coat of paint. So, we're... <laughs> not doing it, or just improving things on the outside, and or that. Um, living superficially on the surface, because we're afraid of the cost of dealing with the mess underneath. 
of what's really going on in the deepest part of who we are. And here's this is the thing about Stanford. Y'all know this, but nobody wants to talk about it. And maybe every now and then you find a relationship where it's safe enough to briefly give something a glimpse of this. Everybody here is really, really scared. Everybody here is really, really scared. Everybody here is really radically insecure. And here's the other big one that nobody wants to admit. Everybody here is really angry. Stanford is a really angry place. But we're so good at keeping our GPAs high, and, and, and the, it's always sunny every day, and we can smile, that none of us are actually talking about what's happening inside of us. We're afraid of right being the only one. We're afraid of the embarrassment of possibly finding out we're the only one. And we think if we pulled up the floorboards and the mess got out and came into the open, because that's what it takes to deal with rot, that's what it takes to deal with the insides, we think we could never be happy. That's the only way you could never be happy, right? So our instinct for happiness is to trust our plans, right? If our plans work out, we'll be happy. Trust our plans instead of actually what's doing what seems to be the most unhappy thing in the world, which is pulling up the floorboards, and getting in there and pulling out nasty stuff. That's got to be the most unhappy thought. None of us want to do it. And I want you to think about the Chinese finger trap now. Right? What's our instinct? Follow through with our plans. If we get our plans, we're happy. You know what you're doing? You're pulling. And Jesus here is telling you to push if you want to be free. Pull the mess out if you want to be free. He's speaking right into our fears and he's challenging us to push through our facade and let him speak to deep things and the darkened things and the rotten things so that you can be happy. That's what he's aiming for with these words. And so I really actually, we're going to do this, this text in two weeks. We're going to do first half of this week and second half of next week. But in these two weeks, whether you're a Christian, whether you're skeptical, a non-Christian, whatever it is, Here's what I would beg you to do. Let the words of Jesus do business with the real you, the inner you, the one you can't talk about, that doesn't want to be challenged, that doesn't want to be exposed, that's really, really afraid, because the bathroom is rotting. And you've got to stop thinking that putting a fresh coat of paint on the siding is actually dealing with the issue. So we're going to do this week is the first half of the Beatitudes address our relationship with God, how we've got to reverse the way we think about God. And the second half of these verses, which we'll deal with next week, is Jesus is reversing the way you think about relating to others. We are pulling and Jesus is telling us to push. So what I want to offer you this week is, what is the main thing God is telling us about how to relate to Him? Jesus is telling us about happiness in our relationship with God. And it's this... We think that what we're supposed to do to be right with God and find joy in Him is give Him our best. And that's not what He's saying. He's saying if you want to, be in, if you want to experience blessedness, if you want to have true existential, I can feel it, oh my gosh, I'm safe in Jesus, life is happy now, blessedness, you're supposed to bring to God your neediness, not your best. You'll never be happy if you think, I'm going to be happy when I've done enough to make God happy. And David in Psalm 51 actually gets it when he says, God doesn't want my sacrifices. 
the sacrifices of bulls, all the Old Testament ritual and goats on altars, but the sacrifice that God wants, this is how David moves towards happiness. The sacrifice God wants is a broken and contrite heart. That's what the Beatitudes are about. And I'll see four things this week, real briefly, uh, especially because the second half of my notes didn't even make it out of the printer, so we're going to be winging it. Um, That's going to be fun. Uh, So hopefully four things. uh, That Jesus is teaching us through these Beatitudes, and the first one is this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The first thing Jesus is calling us to is an awareness of our spiritual poverty. What does he mean, poor in spirit? Poor in spirit are those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt. That before God, we cannot summon because we do not have enough spiritual resources to please Him. People who will experience joy in this life will be the people that come to God and say, I have nothing. I don't have anything to impress you with. Those are the people who are going to be happy. Now, why do we not experience that happiness? Right? It's actually because we spiritually live the same way our culture financially lives. We don't have money, so we take out a ton of debt with credit cards and automotive debt so that we can appear spiritually upper middle class. And so, all the while, we know on some level there's a mound of debt, there's a hole behind us. But on the facade, we have a spiritual four-bedroom, 300-square-foot house, and we have a spiritual BMW, and there's a terrifying debt that's supporting all that. So our spiritual upper-middle-classness is a sham, and we know that there is a gap between who we pretend and we're trying to be, right? Because we're Christians. Some of us at least are identifying as Christians. And we have this image of kind of who we're trying to be, and we think we're going to finally be, and God's going to be happy with. There's a huge gap between that person and who we really are. And we keep thinking, God could only ever love this person. That person, as long as we live with that gap wide open, is never going to be happy because Jesus is saying, I want to deal with this person, the who you really are person. And he's saying you'll only experience blessedness when you finally actually file for spiritual bankruptcy and let your fa- fa- the facade collapse. And what our instinct is, I can't do that. That would be disaster for it to come out who I really, really, really was. And so what we do is we take out a third mortgage on the house, right? Because what our response is to our disasters is, no, but this time I'm going to be good. You cannot be happy, period, till you fall apart before Jesus. You will not be happy till you fall apart before Jesus. Now, you may be feeling, this is what I don't like about Christianity. Right? It says that we it says that we don't have things in our life that are not good, that don't impress God. I hate that about Christianity because I think I'm doing pretty good at some things and I'm better than I don't think I'm better than people, but I'm like basically a good person, and that should be good enough for God to accept. That's what we want to think. And that seems reasonable, right? I'm not a terrible person. I don't like this part of Christianity that says we're bankrupt. I, I mean I'm pretty good, shouldn't that be good enough for God? Now, it seems reasonable, but you've got to think more deeply about what you're saying. Because what you're saying is, I don't want a God who saves by grace. I want a God who saves on a sliding scale. Who recognizes and rewards the people who try hard enough to be good. 
And the irony of actually denying your spiritual poverty and denying the doctrine of spiritual poverty is that actually what you end up doing is shutting the door on more people than you open the door for. Because grace says anyone can come. Spiritual poverty means all are welcome. But if you live in this world where you're like, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't like the idea that God says I'm a bad person. So I have to believe they're good and they're bad people. That actually means that some are good enough to experience joy with God. And there are a lot of people who aren't candidates for that joy. The doctrine of spiritual poverty or of sin is actually far more hopeful and open than our persistent need to say, no, but I'm good. The first thing Jesus is saying is, give up and you'll be happy. The second thing he's saying is this, blessed are those who mourn who shall be comforted. This means that we're not simply aware of our spiritual poverty. We don't simply say, I think that's true. This means that now it hits your heart and you're sad about it. It begins to affect you. Our spiritual poverty, but also other people's spiritual poverty. Sin and the suffering that it's caused. The psychological and physical and systemic and relational suffering of this world. If you want to be happy, you've got to learn how to be sad about those things. And notice also, it doesn't say, blessed are those who have mourned. But actually, those who do mourn. It's a present participle. Those who are mourning now. Because we're actually complex creatures emotionally and we can hold joy and mourning together at the same time. We can be blessedly happy and mourn. In fact, Jesus is saying, blessed happiness requires mourning. And I think probably one of the reasons a lot of us aren't happy is because we're too afraid of being sad. Because we refuse to engage in sadness. And we keep thinking, if we get rid of this doctrine of sin, then we'll finally get happy. If we stop thinking... We need to stop thinking and saying there's something wrong with us. Let's stop telling one another, hey, I think you're wrong. I think you're in sin. Then we'll be happy. And it hasn't worked yet because it can't work. Because sadness is the only fertile soil for joy. This is why Jess Springer laughs louder than anybody else in this room. is because she's actually really good at being sad. Y'all need to hang out with her. Girls, everybody in our hang out with Jess and learn about how to be sad. That's actually why she laughs so loud. That's why her laughter is louder than anybody's in this room. To avoid sadness, what we do is we create a morally and spiritually kind of relative landscape that's a fantasy world where there's no real bad people and there's no real bad desires that need to be questioned. And what we're left with is this huge gap in our souls between the deeper knowledge that, wow, I'm really broken. And our, super, our, our kind of superficial party line that nothing's really wrong with people except for the handful of really bad people. Right? ISIS, the governor in Indiana, and the essays at Oklahoma. Right? <laughs> All <laughs> hang out together. <laughs> right? There's a class of bad people. It's just small, and usually Facebook or Fox News or MSNBC help us identify it. Right? That's our party line. Nothing is wrong, really, with the rest of us. Why do we have no joy and only using distraction? It's actually because we're too afraid to mourn. Mourn ourselves. We're actually so afraid of sadness that we've classified it as a disease. Right? If you're sad, then something's wrong with you. Okay, something is wrong, so you should be sad. 
I don't know how we did that. But here's the application for this point. This one's really simple. You write this down. It's two words. Be sad. Jesus wants you to be happy. If you want to be happy, you've got to get better at being sad. Here, more. Take one hour this week and try to cry about what's wrong with you. Don't cry about your victimhood. Don't cry about what's the wrong that's been done to you. That's legitimate too. Do that another time. Spend, see if you can spend one hour and be sad about how you're broken. Call the sin in your life sin. Even if you're not even comfortable with that, just try it. If you're like, I'm not a Christian, read the Bible and say like, I don't love God. I think that's a sin. Try to be sad about it. Be sad about the fact that you lie. Actively, go practice the sadness. Be sad about the fact that we cheat. Be sad about the fact that one day you're going to tell your spouse that you've shared your body with a bunch of other people. And that is going to jack with your marriage. Okay? Be sad that you don't love Jesus. Be sad that we're hypocrites. Be sad that we're scared and that we're fake and that we're insecure. And bring your sadness to Jesus. You're never going to be happy until you get better at being sad. You'll mimic happiness socially and chemically and you'll die a thousand deaths in your private moments and in your thought life when you find that your unwillingness to be sad has actually deadened you as a human and you're no longer a person who can feel at all. You're just an automaton in our consumer-driven culture and you just buy stuff and don't feel things. You deaden your ability to be sad, that's where you're going to end up. And in fact, there'll be one emotion left that you can feel. You'll be able to feel anger when someone catches you and anger when someone inconveniences or disagrees with you. That's the last emotion and the only emotion you'll have left and you'll be capable enough unless you're willing to be sad. Sadness is the doorway to blessed happiness in the kingdom of God. Jesus wants us to be aware of our spiritual poverty. He wants us to be sad about it. And next he says, if you want to be happy, you then have to realize you're powerless to do nothing about it. Blessed are the meek, that is the weak the humble, the powerless. The powerless are going to inherit the earth. If you're broke and you're sad about it, what are you going to do? Right? You pick yourself up and you do something about it. If you want the world, go get it. If you start broke and you start sad, then that's your starting point, so let's go. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. The meek are the powerless. The gentle, the person who knows he's broke, who's saddened by it. And meek know, means that you know ultimately you actually lack the power to fix it. Meekness is the humility that comes when you realize that all your dreaming and your determination and even the success that you will have can't fix what's actually wrong. Y'all need to hang out with people who've been successful in your fields and in the, with the dreams you have to find out it didn't fix it. That even the success they had didn't fix what's wrong. We're just polishing brass on the Titanic. This is, this is why we talk about ourselves all the time. This is why we take selfies. This is why we post to social media. And this is why we crave likes. We have to know who sees and responds. Because we think that's going to make us whole. And that's our crack. It's a drug that chemically induces a fake feeling of being okay. Right? And the interesting thing about meekness is that meekness is where actual confidence has grown. Because guess what? Confident people don't wonder about likes. If you were confident, you'd never wonder about that. I wish I didn't wonder about it. 
Confident people don't need to be noticed, don't need to be heard in order to feel valid. Those are actually the marks of us when we refuse to acknowledge that it's not working. So we puff ourselves up in arrogance, believing all the hype we've created about ourselves and asking others to acknowledge the hype about us because we're wildly insecure. Meekness, on the other hand, leads to real confidence. True confidence doesn't have to bolster itself. It doesn't check for likes because true confidence is quiet because it doesn't care. Because it's confident. Because the confidence of a meek person is in the Lord and not in self. The Beatitudes, y'all challenge us on the deepest level. I hope you're, you're feeling that. It's challenging our dreams on the deepest level because it's a recognition that even if I do accomplish my dreams, which a lot of y'all will, our dreams are powerless to fix what's wrong, to heal us. You will not inherit the earth. You will seek your life now and lose it, is what Jesus says, instead of lose your life now in order to gain it. Are you willing to say... It's not working. That Stanford is not working. Y'all, it's not working. Stanford is killing people. It ain't bringing happiness to anybody. I haven't seen that in my four years here. Freshman, you need to talk to seniors. It hadn't worked for them. Lying is not working. Dating is not working. Drunkenness is not working. Do-gooderism is not working. Even religion and religious practices aren't working. Our plans for happiness aren't working. Right? We're awesome at making it look like it's working. But inside we know it's not. Jesus is saying you've got to be aware of your spiritual poverty. You've got to be sad about it. You've got to realize you can't do anything about it. And then lastly, you've got to experience desperation. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are going to be satisfied. This is the language of desperation. This is the language of, I will die if I don't have this. It is good for you to feel, I will die if I don't have this. And he's saying, blessed, not those who are righteous, and not blessed those who feel righteous. But blessed are those who are starving for it, who are thirsty for it, which means they long for it and think, I cannot live if I don't have it. Psalm 1, the psalmist says, blessed is the man who is rooted in the Lord. And that's what righteousness is. Rooted in the Lord, right with God. You are sinking your roots into something for the purpose of finding happiness. That is the summary of your life. For the purpose of finding blessedness, joy, completeness, rest, comfort, a place, a home. And Jesus is saying, you will only find those things rooted in God Himself, being right with God. The satisfaction you seek is found in being and rooted in God Himself. And you've got to see that every day you're feasting on something in hopes that it's going to satisfy you. And you've got to see it's not working. And the person who's going to experience deep abiding, that means ongoing happiness, is the one who finally realizes my hunger, this thing that I need, otherwise I feel like I'm dying, is God. It's being with Him. And I'll close with this. How do we then get this? And here's how you get it. We have four little girls learning musical instruments in our house. And it was painful a year and a half ago. It's getting better. And I watch y'all play up here and I'm like, it's going to be a symphony one day. But you know how you get there? You practice. How do you get into this kind of blessedness? You have to practice the gospel. 
Because the gospel is how God makes us right with Him. The gospel is God's answer to our poverty and to our sadness and to our powerlessness and to our hunger and thirst. The gospel is the rootedness which when you take it to the center of your life and you make it the thing that you draw from for meaning and for purpose and for happiness, it provides the blessedness that endures. And when, when the religious word righteous comes up, we, we tend to think, oh, this is the rules part. Right? Righteous, I hate that word. This is where you have to. You do admit, oh, you do have to be good enough for God to love you. But you haven't listened. Jesus is saying righteousness is something that you're hungry and thirsty for. That means righteousness is something you receive, not something you achieve. And what I want you to do is you imagine the gospel to be a piano. And the first time it comes into your home, it's there. And when you play it the first time, it sounds terrible. You got music in your home for the first time, the home of your life. The gospel's there. But it sounds terrible, and you're banging on the keys. And it's music, and your house does, in fact, have music. But to enjoy that piano, you have to practice it. You have to sit down at the piano, and you have to make a lot of mistakes. You have to hit the wrong keys. You have to not understand tempo and rhythm. You have to not understand melody. And you have to try, and you have to arrange the notes, and you stumble a bunch, and you make mistakes along the way. And that's how you get to the place where not weeks, and not months, and maybe even still years later, your house is filled with joyful noise. You experience blessedness. You experience happiness. You experience wonder, and it begins to change you. In order to get to that place, you have to practice. And here's what I mean by practice. I mean you have to play the notes of the gospel into your life. And and here are the four basic notes in this order that you start to play. Just the first, just get your index finger and play it. God made a beautiful world. Everything about it is beautiful. Every hair on your head, He intended to be beautiful. Every eyelash, every leaf on every tree, every color and every flavor, and every person, regardless of the way they're shaped or how smart they are or how funny they are, God intended them all to be beautiful. And it's broken. That's the second note. First note is God made a world in order for it to simply be beautiful. That was its purpose. That was our purpose. It was simply aesthetic. God's an artist. The second thing is it's obviously broken. And we're the people who broke it. My selfishness broke it. Your selfishness broke it. Our selfishness broke it. We are co-participants in the breaking of beauty. That's the second note of the gospel. And the third note of the gospel is Jesus has come to absorb the brokenness of the world. To take on the guilt of those who've broken it and to carry away the thing that threatens to destroy it, which is death. That's the third note of the gospel. And the fourth note of the gospel is He's making all things new again. We're in a time of waiting There will be a day when beauty is completely restored. The world is created to be beautiful. We broke it with our sin. Jesus has redeemed us, and He's making all things new. Those are the four notes of the gospel. When I say practice the gospel, I'm not talking about a bunch of spiritual disciplines. That's a good conversation for another day. I'm saying speaking the story of Scripture into your way you think about your classes, and the way you think about your friends, and the way you think about your sexuality, and the way you think about your social life, and the way you think about your body, and the way you think about your food. You start speaking those four notes. And here's what's going to happen. If you're like, apply the gospel to my food, yes, you should. You know what's going to happen when you try to apply your gospel to food? It's going, to, it's going to sound terrible for a while. You're not going to be good at it. You know what's going to happen when you try to apply the gospel to your social life? It's going to sound terrible for a while because you're not going to know how to apply it. How do you get good at playing the piano? You just make bad noise for a while and keep going back at it. 
And, it, and what you're going to find is maybe you came to Jesus hoping He would fix one or two issues in your life. And what you're going to find is the more you play those notes, you become like a jazz musician. You begin to riff on those notes. You begin to explore those notes. You begin to explore the melody to where all of a sudden you're filling up the house with a symphony. And you're finding out that Jesus didn't come just to fix one or two issues. He came to involve every, invade and redeem every thought and every feeling and every relationship and every ambition. Every single corner of your brain and heart and history and life. Jesus wants to get into and play those four notes. What do you do to be happy? Practice those four notes. Let's pray.